Thanks for joining us in our study of the letter to the Galatians. It is in this scripture we're reminded that the gospel is the A to Z of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel, that Jesus is better, should change our thinking and approach to absolutely everything. Cornerstone exists to proclaim and demonstrate Christ in all of life so as to make people perfect in him. Galatians 1, after a week break, we are finishing our three-part sermon here, looking through this section in Galatians 1.11 to chapter 2, verse 10, page 972, if you're using one of the Bibles there, in the seat in front of you. When you're there, please look at verse 11, follow along as I read. Paul writes, for I would have you know, brothers, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. For you have heard of my former life in Judaism, how I persecuted the church of God violently and tried to destroy it. And I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people, so extremely zealous was I for the traditions of my fathers. But when he who had set me apart before I was born and who called me by his grace was pleased to reveal his son to me in order that I might preach him among the Gentiles, I did not immediately consult with anyone, nor did I go up to Jerusalem to those who were apostles before me. But I went away into Arabia and returned again to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to visit Cephas and remained with him 15 days. But I saw none of the other apostles except James, the Lord's brother, and what I am writing to you before God, I do not lie. Then I went into the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and I was still unknown in person to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only were hearing it said, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy, and they glorified God because of me. Then, after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus so that they might bring us into slavery... To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me, God shows no partiality, those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Let's pray. Fathers, we come to the end of our study of these verses that I just read. I pray that you will work in us through your spirit to understand what the issue is that's going on here in Galatia. Because it's not just a thing of the past of, of 2,000 years ago that we don't deal with today. 
The reality is, in each and every one of our hearts, we are prone to wander away from the gospel time and time again. We're prone to to not view ourselves as being complete in Christ or to see that he is all we have. We constantly, it seems, want to look for more or other things. And so, as we have worked even through these beginning sections of Paul's letter, we're already seeing the reality that this letter is for us. These issues are our issues, and the response that Paul gives is the response we need. And so I pray that you will use your word today to encourage us to remember that there is only one gospel, only one hope, and that is in the person of Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. I want to jump right into our message this morning as I kind of feel like we have a lot to cover. I had thought a little bit last week before we knew what was going to happen with that crazy storm that none of us expected that I might possibly even break this message up into two, uh, last week and this, but since uh, the hurricane happened, I'm not going to do that. We're going to go through it all in one no matter what. Uh, That's my plan for the morning. But anyway, over the previous two Sundays, I have attempted to walk us through a chronology that Paul is laying out for us here in Galatians 1.11 to 2.10. And as I've attempted to make very clear, I hope, each week, That chronology is not being presented in some kind of vacuum, as if the chronology itself is what is so important or so critical that Paul's trying to get it across, because that's not the case at all. That said, though the main point is not the chronology, the chronology that has been presented is a part of the larger point that Paul is trying to make here. Here is the chronology that we have built so far in this section over the last two messages. After mentioning his pre-conversion life, he gives a very brief description of his conversion when he sees and hears Jesus Christ himself in person there on the road to Damascus. After this, he spends some time in Damascus, and then he goes off to Arabia, and then he comes back to Damascus before making his very first visit to Jerusalem post-conversion. Now, this was not a long visit, Uh, 15 days he records here in the text. He sees uh, James, the Lord's brother, the apostles, but really no one else of significance. After this, he goes back off to the regions of Syria and Cilicia, and all seems well. And it's at that point that the stories of Galatians and Acts diverge just a little bit. In Acts, Luke then records another visit that Paul makes, at least to the region of Judea, probably Jerusalem, but it's hard to say for sure. But he goes there for the purposes of famine relief. He then returns back to Antioch, eventually goes off on his first missionary journey to the Galatian provinces. That's where he visits uh, city in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, Derbe, all those cities that we read about in Acts 13 and 14. He preaches the gospel there. He establishes churches there. And then later, sometime after he gets back from that visit, he heads off to Jerusalem for a third and very important visit. So this is what we have built so far over the last two Sundays, comparing Acts and Galatians and trying to get all the pieces to work together. I hope you have been able to follow this. Now, I called that third visit to Jerusalem a very important visit. And the question is, why was that visit so important? Well, as we take Acts 15 and we compare it to what we see in Galatians 1 and 2, it seems very likely that a group of Jews who used to be a part of the Pharisee party, the party that was behind the crucifixion of Jesus, that they had at some point claimed to have become believers in Christ, but sometime after that, they had turned away from the gospel of grace and had begun advocating the necessity for Gentiles who wanted to be saved 
to be circumcised and to keep the Old Testament law. And a number of these people have apparently at some point, or had apparently at some point decided to become missionaries of this new gospel. You read about this in Acts 15. A group of them had gone out from Jerusalem and had gone at least as far as Syrian Antioch. That's Antioch in the region of Syria. And this is where Paul and Barnabas are. And that's where they encountered this new gospel. And it also seems very likely that when they arrived, they, they most probably were claiming to be representing the apostles in Jerusalem with this new gospel. Now think about that from the perspective of the churches, perspective of the believers. If you're a Christian, you're in the church of Antioch, and all of a sudden a, a group of people show up and they say, hi, you know, we're from Jerusalem, we're here representing Peter and James and John and all the other disciples whose names we don't remember right. Uh, we're here and we've got this new gospel. You've heard about Jesus, but you need to add in also uh, circumcision in the Old Testament law to be saved. What, you know, what would that do to you as a believer hearing this? What well, would probably confuse you. It would kind of throw you off a little bit, like, well, wait, we had heard this, but now this group is here from Jerusalem representing the apostles. That's kind of a big deal. We should listen to what they have to say. So there's very likely a, a great deal of confusion, which is why Paul and Barnabas go back to Jerusalem to get this thing worked out. But, but that aside for a moment, I think that very likely either those same missionaries that showed up in Antioch with this false gospel, or at the very least their message, makes it a little further west of, of Syria into the regions of Galatia, where people there who are probably under antagonism and persecution from the unbelieving Jewish community around them hear this new gospel, hear this addition to the gospel of circumcision to Old Testament law, and they think, aha, that right there, if we believe that, if we accept that, that will get rid of this antagonism. It'll get rid of this persecution. Uh, it'll be a, a more palatable gospel to the unbelieving Jews around us, more popular amongst them. Let's, let's teach this. Let's believe this. Let's proclaim this, even if we have to destroy the Apostle Paul in the process. And that's what they seem to do. They seem to have personally attacked Paul. If they can discredit Paul, then they can very likely discredit his message. And so it seems, you know, well, the influential people in Jerusalem are teaching this, but Paul teaches this, so we can't believe Paul and his gospel. That's what we've seen so far. That, that is the, the working premise that we have put together both through the chronology and through the book of Acts that I'm, I'm kind of building on as we get ready really to dig into the meat of Galatians. And if we don't understand that working premise, if we don't understand that foundation, then we're never going to really understand all the things that Paul is going to address and talk about here throughout the rest of the book. Having said that, though, and having laid that foundation, I would argue that we still don't fully understand the book yet. And it's not because we haven't been trying. It's not because we haven't paid careful attention to what's there. It's just because I think we have certain cultural or religious blind spots that, that make it more difficult for us to understand exactly what's going on here. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to walk through this presentation one last time, and we're going to ask and answer four questions as we go through it. I'm doing this based off of the little comments and statements that Paul sort of sprinkles in and throughout his chronology here. Here, uh, the first three questions we've already kind of asked, asked in the past, and we have partially answered them, so I won't add too much to what I've already said. I'll just maybe highlight a thing or two to help you see it in greater detail. 
But the fourth question, I think, will allow us to really address our blind spots and hopefully give us a really nice way of bringing all of this together so we understand in detail what is wrong here in the book of Galatians. So with that laid out, let's look at question number one. Question number one is, what exactly is the problem in Galatia? Now, as I said, we've already partially answered this question, so I don't need to spend too much time here. The the answer is that some group is teaching a gospel that is contrary or different to the one that Paul preached. Paul's gospel was clearly focused on the person of Jesus Christ. I mean, if you just look through your text, you'll see it over and over again. I'll just give you examples. It was Jesus that was revealed to Paul. It's Jesus that he preaches. It's Jesus who brings us freedom. Over and over again, he talks about the person of Jesus Christ throughout and the centrality of Jesus Christ throughout this presentation. Not only that, but he focuses on the centrality of faith. You see just an example here. He preached the very faith that he once tried to destroy. And when you read that there, don't read the word faith as in religion, as if he preaches the religion that he once tried. Think of it as the centrality of faith, the importance of faith, the need of faith. He once tried to destroy that very truth, and now he's out there preaching it. Which means then that this new gospel that's being preached by these false teachers is not focused solely on the person of Jesus Christ, nor is it focused solely on the centrality of faith and the necessity of faith for salvation. This is a a new gospel that apparently says in order to be saved, you have to have faith in Jesus and. Okay, and it's that one word that creates the problem for us. Whenever we add something to Jesus, that's Jesus plus this, Jesus and that, Jesus with, along with, it doesn't matter. It's the and in this section that is causing the problems in Galatia and that Paul is responding to. Question number two, who's behind this? Well, again, we've already partially answered this question. I've told you that it appears that a group of of Jewish people who had at some point in the past apparently claimed to be believers in Jesus have now walked away from Christ, have walked away from the gospel of grace, and are on their way walking back towards Judaism. You say, well, how exactly, Stacey, do you, do you know they're Jewish? Well, I would just highlight a couple of clues here in our specific text, and you're going to see this repeated time and time again as we work through the rest of the book. But first, Paul's emphasis on his own background in Judaism seems designed to establish the fact that he is qualified to address it. You know, what's the point of emphasizing this if he's dealing with a Gentile audience? They don't care what his background in Judaism is. But because he's probably dealing with a Jewish uh, set of false teachers, he needs to sort of establish his credentials. You want to talk about circumcision? You want to talk about the Old Testament law? I know it. I know it. I lived it. I understand it. And I can respond to you in detail as we go. So get ready. It's sort of setting up a, a scenario that he's able to respond to. Secondly, I think they're Jewish because it's the only reason that the issue of circumcision would be brought up at all. And I'll talk about this more in a moment, but I'll just say for now, you know, in our day, the the act or the procedure of circumcision is just a medical thing. There's no real cultural or religious overtones attached to it in any way, shape, or form. But that would not have been the case in Paul's day. In Paul's day, circumcision was a uniquely Jewish tradition. It's so unique to the Jewish people that they can define the entire world by whether you're circumcised or not. Anyone who isn't circumcised is clearly a Gentile. Anyone who is circumcised is clearly a Jew. 
which means that the only people who would be advocating the importance and necessity of the act of circumcision would be a Jewish group of some sort. And again, you're going to see this play out throughout the rest of the book. Question number three, how are the false teachers going about doing this? And again, I've answered this one partially, so I don't have to spend a lot of time here. They're doing it, as I said, by attacking the apostle Paul. If they can discredit Paul, they can discredit his message. I've said that more than once. But as we've seen now in this chronology, I think we can say just a little bit more than that. It seems that they, they're trying to pit Paul against the Jerusalem apostles in two different ways. First, by claiming that the leaders in Jerusalem are more authoritative, more uh, important than Paul is. It, it's very probable that they were claiming that these leaders in Jerusalem were more influential, using those, that wording specifically, which is why Paul uses that same wording so many times. I mean, you see it here in verse 2. You see it two times here in verse 6. You see it again here in verse 9. If Paul had only made reference to them being influential just one time, kind of in passing, none of us would think anything of it, most likely. But the fact that he does it time and time and time again most likely is a clue that this was one of the talking points of the false teachers. That they showed up to the Galatian churches and it's like, I know that you've heard what Paul said, but the influential leaders in Jerusalem say this instead. And that they tried to make some big deal out of the fact that the leaders in Jerusalem are, are more important than Paul could ever be. And if that confuses you a little bit, just think about their Jewish background and Jewish heritage. In Judaism, what is the, the locus of God's presence on earth? It's Jerusalem. Where does the high priest live? In Jerusalem. Where do all the religious leaders of the people stay? In Jerusalem. So that they would transfer that kind of thinking to the apostles and somehow view the, the leaders in Jerusalem as being the more important and more significant people is not really all that shocking. So what I think Paul is doing here is he keeps mentioning the influential people, the influential people. I think he's actually being sarcastic. I think he's, he's kind of trying to use their own words against them. He, it's not that he's being sarcastic towards the Jerusalem leaders. Let's be real clear on that. He's being sarcastic towards the false teachers themselves who are trying to puff these people up and make them to be more than they are. Thus, it, it kind of puts Paul in a hard spot. Because on the one hand, because they're doing this, he needs to establish his independence from the Jerusalem leaders. And I think this is why, as we went through the chronology, he makes a bigger deal about all the times he wasn't in Jerusalem and how little he talked to them than he does about who he did talk to. It's like, well, I was only there 15 days. I only saw these people. It was 14. You know, again and again and again, you get the idea that he's trying to, to say, well, I wasn't really with them that much. He wants to uh, establish there's some distance between them. I think it's also why he makes a couple of very pointed comments along the way. For example, here in verse 6, remember this? He, he makes this comment, you know, what they are makes no difference to me. <laughs> These influential leaders, God shows no partiality. They're not special, he says, because they're the leaders in Jerusalem. God, God doesn't care about such things. You see it again in verse 8, where he clearly puts his own apostolic status on the same level with Peter's. Same source from Jesus, same job, apostolic ministry, uh, different audience, Jews versus Gentiles. His larger point is that both his apostolic status and his gospel are independent from and as authoritative as anything you're going to find in Jerusalem. And yet, back to that rock and a hard place situation he's in, 
while he wants to distance himself on one hand, at the same time, he also kind of wants to establish that he's in agreement with the Jerusalem apostles as well. Uh, You see this here when he talks about he presented his gospel to the Jerusalem leaders and they added nothing to it. This is important because he wants to show that we're in lockstep. You know, what I'm preaching is what they're preaching. What I believe is what they believe. What, What I'm saying is what they're saying. When they heard me present my gospel, they didn't come in and go, well, you know, Paul, you're missing uh, circumcision. You're missing the Old Testament law. You're missing A, B, C, D, E, F, and G. They add nothing to his message. What he says is valid. Uh, they go beyond that even, not just to say it's valid, but they, they really place their stamp of approval on him and his gospel, his ministry. And so what you see here is that contrary to the claims of the false teachers, there's neither a hierarchy nor a disagreement between Paul and the Jerusalem leaders. Everything is fine between them. The second way they seem to be trying to pit Paul against the Jerusalem leaders, I think, is by claiming that Paul's gospel is his own. I, I just take us back here. We looked at it already, so I won't develop it again. But why would Paul begin this entire section with this comment, trying to show from the outset that his gospel doesn't come from any man, not from himself or any other? It's only, it can only be because that must have been one of the attacks of the false teachers, that they were trying to say that his gospel was his own. He counters that by saying, no, I received it directly from Christ like the rest of the apostles. So, so this seems to be a more complete picture of what I mean when I say that they were attacking Paul. They're trying to pit him against the Jerusalem leaders to show there's a hierarchy or at least a disagreement. He says, no hierarchy no disagreement. Our gospel, like their gospel, came from Christ himself. Now, sorry, I had to fly through that final question where we'll spend the rest of our time. Why? Doesn't it always come back to the question why, it seems like, in life? You know what people do. You might understand how they go about doing it, but the the real question is that of motivation. Why are these false teachers trying to change the gospel? Well, like with the first three questions, I've given you a partial answer. I've told you multiple times that I suspect that there is a desire on the part of some of these people to try to get away from the antagonism and the persecution that they were under because of the gospel, particularly from the Jewish community, by latching on to something that would make the gospel more palatable, more popular. You know, if if, If Jesus is offensive to the Jewish unbelievers uh, because he changes their system of thinking, well, then maybe if we bring some of that back in, they won't be quite so offended. That's what I suspect is the case. But while I definitely think that's a part of it, I think there's more than that behind this desire to mix faith in Jesus with observance of the Old Testament law. I think what you see here is a fundamental misunderstanding of at least three things. Number one, a misunderstanding of the Old Testament law itself. Number two, a misunderstanding of the God who gave it. And then number three, a misunderstanding of what is necessary for someone to be in a right relationship with God. You see, the Jews in Paul's day had come to believe that in order to be saved, in order to be right with God, in order to be one of God's chosen people, a part of his covenant community, Two things had to be true of you. You had to be circumcised, and you had to keep 
obey, follow, observe, whatever word you want to use here, the Old Testament law. First, in regards to circumcision, they viewed that act as the God-given sign that would forever identify all those who were one of his people, okay? Uh, and that belief is not without biblical merit. A couple weeks ago in your bulletin, I gave you a little assignment. I asked you to read Galatians chapter 17, verses 1 through 14, and to try to understand why circumcision was so important to the Jewish people. I'm not going to ask if you did it. I'm just going to go ahead and read a portion of it myself. Listen as I read this portion of verses 9 through 14 from that passage. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins. And note this, it shall be, that act, that mark, shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. So this is why circumcision is so important, because it acts as the identifying mark of your entrance into the covenant community of God, as being one of God's chosen people. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring, both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. Now note this final statement because it's very important. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people he has broken my covenant. Now, do you see this last component here? Not only is circumcision a sign by which you are identified as being a part of the people of God, but being uncircumcised is a de facto guarantee of being excluded from God's people. It's not as if in their minds there are some uh, believers who are circumcised and some who are not just because of whatever reason. If you're not, you're out. That's, <laughs> that's a pretty strong statement. If, you're, if any, any uncircumcised male who's not circumcised, he's out. He is excluded from God's people. This is why in Jewish culture, if a, if a Gentile wanted to convert... You know, okay, so I'm, I'm, I'm a Babylonian, and I've always worshipped the gods of, of Babylon, but now all of a sudden I've come to see that I should follow Yahweh, the God of Israel. I want to convert. I want to become a Jew like you. Step one, circumcision. I can't just, like, you know, believe like them and just keep going and nothing change. I, I have to have this act. Um, now, Quick rabbit trail, because some of you have probably wondered about this in the past, and I thought I would answer it for you. Obviously, the sign of this covenant only works for half the population, right? So some of you would be instantly going, uh, well, what about me? What's going to, how do I fit into that? Well, for, for the ladies, it would apply to them either through their father or their husband. So if their father is circumcised, according to the Old Testament law, he's got the mark of the covenant on him, well, then she, his daughter, is automatically covered by that, so to speak. She gets to be a part of the covenant community because her father is. That's how the culture worked. And then, of course, when she gets married, being a good Jewish girl, she's only going to marry a man who has been circumcised, who is himself a part of the covenant community. And so for the ladies, it applied either through their relationship to their father 
or their husband. So in that sense, it applies to everyone. If you want to be a part of God's covenant community, this has to be true somewhere. <laughs> Either for you, dad, husband, whatever the case may be, you have to be circumcised. Second, in regards to keeping, observing, obeying the Old Testament law, the expectation was that if you are, again, going to be a part of the covenant community, you've got the sign, the seal of circumcision on your body, you will now live by the 613 commandments of Moses that we call the Old Testament law. I've repeated this before. I'll say it again today. There are more than 10 commandments. I get that. Okay, there were 10 given on Mount Sinai on tablets of stone, but after that came another 603, all right? 613 total commandments make up what we call the Old Testament law. And the expectation was if you're a member of God's chosen people, you're going to live by that. And again, that belief is not without biblical warrant. Listen to just one example. I could have chosen a number, but I'm giving you one as a representative. Listen uh, to this one from Deuteronomy chapter 7, verses 9 through 11. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God the faithful God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations and repays to their face those who hate him. Now I'll pause and ask this question. If the people who loved him kept his commandments and statutes, then doesn't it follow that the people who hate him are the ones who do not keep his covenants and statutes? Yes, say yes. Okay, that's the right answer. So, so read again. He repays to their face those who hate him by destroying them. He will not be slack with the one who hates him. He will repay him to his face. You shall therefore be careful to do the commandment and the statutes and the rules that I command you today. Okay, that's pretty, pretty clear, I would say. If you're, you're going to be a believer, you're going to be following Yahweh, You've got to have the sign of the covenant. You've got to keep the Old Testament law. Therefore, in their minds, talking about the Jews of Paul's day, in order to be saved, in order to be right with God, in order to be a part of God's covenant community, his chosen people, two things have to be true. You have to be circumcised. You have to obey the Old Testament law. This is, this is their mindset. This is how they understood the world. This is how Paul understood the world before he becomes a believer and so then it's no wonder if that is their mindset that they're going to wrestle with how does Jesus fit into this? Our whole lives we've understood our relationship to God to be based on this mark and this obedience. How then is Jesus mixing into all of that? How does a Gentile who accepts Christ get into that mix? Does he not have to be circumcised? We, right? That's how we've always thought. Does he not have to keep the That's what we've always believed, so... They're simply doing what they know. But unfortunately, there's a problem with what they know, and that is that they don't really know what they think they know. You see, their beliefs tell us more about their own misunderstanding of the Old Testament than they actually tell us about the Old Testament itself. Their beliefs, uh, excuse me, it begins with a misunderstanding about the nature of God himself, of, of who he is and of who we are in relation to him. You see, the Jews had, generally speaking, a belief that God was, by and large, benevolent towards them. Not because of any necessary reason that they had done, just simply because of who they were. They're the children of Abraham. 
the offspring of the promise, right? The, the children of the covenant. And so just by nature of their birth, God is automatically generally benevolent to them, like nationwide insurance and wavy TV 10. He's on their side, right? That's kind of how they viewed him. But uh, in relation to themselves, they had this belief that they were inherently capable of following those 613 commands of Moses and of making God happy. And if you say, really, are you sure about that? Yeah, I'm sure about that. Remember Paul in Philippians 3? We just looked at this two weeks ago, three weeks ago now because of the storm. Here's Paul, and he's recounting his life before Christ. And he says, when it came to the law, I was what? Does anyone remember the word he said? Blameless. Now, is Paul like, just like lying? Is he like puffing himself up like, well, I really didn't break any laws. I really did. You know, he doesn't want to tell him though. No, I think he really believes he was blameless. When he looked at himself and he looked at his understanding of the Old Testament, I'm great. Um, here's another example. Think of the rich young ruler that comes to Jesus. Remember the question he asks him? Hey, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says, keep the commandments. And what does the guy say? I've done that. <laughs> Since my youth, I've kept them. Again, I don't think the guy's lying. I don't think he's trying to trick Jesus or has... He just has this belief that he has cap is capable of doing it and that he has, in fact, done it. So they misunderstand who God is. They think he's just generally benevolent toward them because they're uh, offspring of Abraham. They misunderstand who they are in relation to him, thinking they're capable of keeping his commandments and making him happy. And once you've misunderstood those two things, who God is and who you are in relation to him, it naturally causes you to misunderstand the means by which you're made right with God. If you believe those two things, it's no wonder then that they come to see circumcision and the Old Testament law as being all they have to do. As long as I can check all the boxes on the scorecard, I can win this game. And that's how they, they function. But of course, we know they were wrong on all of these counts. The God of heaven is not and the default benevolent stance towards any of us. Instead, as you look through the scriptures, you see that God is in a default antagonistic stance towards us, that we are under his wrath, that we are under his judgment, and we ask the question why, and most of us know the answer, it's because of sin, though I doubt, I doubt very many of us stop regularly and think deeply about the essence of sin itself. We tend to think of sin as just being maybe an a infraction against a code, when in reality, it is a direct assault on the person of God himself. It is a direct insult to him, a direct injury to him, which is why he must punish it. And when it comes to sinning, we are experts, are we not? We're sinners by choice, not just once, which would be more than enough to, to warrant God's anger against us, but we have sinned over and over and over, honing our skills with each try. And we are sinners by nature, too. We inherit sin from our first father, Adam. We're born with it. Our kids aren't taught to sin. It's preloaded software, right? They get it right from day one. They know how to do it. And so rather than being inherently capable of following God's commands and of making him happy, we find that we're inherently incapable of following his commands, making him happy at any time and in any way. And so God's anger then is just. And it's right and it must be satisfied. He can't turn a blind eye to it. He can't brush it under the rug. Something has to happen. That's a right understanding of God. 
That's a right understanding of who we are in relation to him. And so guess what? That naturally leads to a right understanding of the gospel. Because how then, once we've seen God as being angry towards our sins, and once we see ourselves as sinners, how can he be just and, and punish sin and at the same time be merciful and forgive us? One word, Jesus. Through Jesus. That's what the gospel of grace alone, through faith alone, Christ alone, is all about. Helping us understand how a right understanding of God and a right understanding of ourselves will lead, in the end, not to punishment, but to forgiveness. He does this through his son. When Jesus is on the cross, as we again know, but we just hear it so much, we forget what it really means. God takes our sin and puts it on his own son. And he pours out his anger and wrath on him. He, he doesn't brush it under the rug. He doesn't just turn a blind eye to it. He deals with it. He punishes it thoroughly, completely, and eternally. God's mercy then isn't given to those who do this or keep that. It's given to those who recognize that they can never earn or deserve God's forgiveness and who place every last speck, I mean every hair of hope, confidence, and trust in Christ alone. This is one basket where all your eggs better be in it or you, you're not there. This is one time that diversification of your portfolio is not a good idea, folks. You either are all in with Jesus or you're not in at all. That's what he tells us time and again in his word. And as we'll see in Galatians, <laughs> this isn't just true of salvation. It is definitely true of salvation, but it's not just true of salvation. It's, it's the key to understanding everything. Jesus is the key to understanding the Old Testament law. Jesus is the key to understanding what it means to actually be the people of God. Jesus is the key to understanding how it is that we live in a manner that pleases God. Jesus is the beginning, the fulfillment, and the end of every single component of our salvation from the moment we repent to the moment we are eternally glorified with him in eternity. This is in the final analysis, I would say, the essence of the gospel that Paul preached that Jesus and Jesus alone is our all in all. You see, it, it comes down to this. Uh, and I try to think how to word this, and I'm going to hope this is, will help you. The gospel you believe in is a direct reflection of the God you believe in. The gospel you believe in is a direct reflection of the God you believe in. If you, like the Jews of Paul's day, like the false teachers in Galatia, and like most people around us, let's be honest, if you have a high view of man and a low view of God, then your gospel will, by necessity, reflect that. It has to. Uh, you will uh, come to understand that it, you know Jesus doesn't need to be your everything. He doesn't, because you can play a part. You can help in some way. You can participate in this process. You don't just need Jesus. Maybe you need his help, but there's something you're doing along with it. But if you have a high view of God and a low view of man, then in your gospel, you will come to realize that apart from Jesus, you have nothing. That when we sing that song that we sang earlier, all I have is Christ, that the word all really means all. That's all. Just as I am, that, that, that hymn, which we have quit singing, which we should probably start singing again. Just as I am without one plea, but 
that thou, my God, has died for me. That's it. You stand before God someday and he says, why should I let you into heaven? It's not, well, because I believe in Jesus and I have no plea, but that you shed your blood for me, Lord. That's all we will have. And as that understanding begins to deepen in your heart, you'll come to see that it's true of every aspect of everything in your life. There's a sense, folks, in which everything we've been looking at up to this point, and again, we're still very early in Galatians. Some of you are like, man, we're like six weeks in, and we're already in chapter two. We're going to be done by Christmas, right? Uh, No, sorry. Once we get to chapter three, we're slowing down here quite a bit. But um, there's a sense in which everything we've looked at up to this point has really been introduction for us. Understanding what's going on here, preparing us to dig into the meat of this book as Paul defends and expounds on four things, and these should sound familiar to you. Number one, the purity of the gospel, and the purity of the gospel is bound up in Jesus Christ and Jesus alone. Number two, the authority of the apostles as we find it recorded in the pages of Holy Scripture, which of course point to who? Jesus. Number three, the centrality of Jesus as the fulfillment and unifying theme of God's revelation in his entire plan that everything, whether we're looking at the Old Testament, our lives today, what God is doing in this world, it all comes back to Jesus. And number four, a right understanding of the Christian life and how to live it, which not surprisingly will be rooted in Jesus. Jesus, Jesus, Jesus. So the drumbeat, Jesus. Like it's not going to stop. You, we get started in Galatians and that's all we hear all the way through. You want to understand Abraham? Jesus. You want to understand Old Testament law? Jesus. You want to understand salvation? Jesus. Wherever we turn, it's Jesus through and through. And that will be the drumbeat of Paul as we begin to dig into the meat of this book. And my hope and prayer for us is that we will be radically changed by it. Will you bow your heads with me? Jesus, we want that to be our drumbeat. We want that truth push down deep into our hearts to recognize that you are our everything. Apart from you, we have nothing. The Galatians have have fallen astray here because they have decided to add something to you. It's Jesus and circumcision, Jesus and the Old Testament law, but we may not be tempted to add those things, but so many people around us add Jesus and living a good life, Jesus and going to church, Jesus and this, Jesus and that. And so the danger is real for us. And our hearts are no less prone to wander than are theirs. And so we need to be grounded in the person and work of Jesus today more than ever as our culture around us crumbles, as people try to draw our hope into other things, as our own hearts desire to put their hope and confidence in other things. May you use your word here in the letter to the Galatians to cement us, to ground us, on the sufficiency, the necessity, and the exclusivicity of Jesus Christ for every aspect of what we need. We ask this in his name. Thank you for listening to this podcast. For more sermons on the book of Galatians and further information on Cornerstone Bible Church, please visit cbcvirginia.com.